This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... A Fantasy Heist. Fat Leonard. Invented Slang. And The Poison King. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without trader mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And what do we have here? Why, we have a big battle mat full of grid squares and little miniatures and tiny furniture. Why, it's just a regular game. But no, it's not. It's also the prepping for a heist because Patreon backer Andy Olson asks us, how would you, and I presume he means in our capacity as game masters, not our capacity as international art thieves, go about <laughs> prepping a heist in a fantasy setting? Uh, Robin? So, uh, as I was thinking this, I was thinking, what are all the elements of a fantasy heist? What would you do? And you know how sometimes we forget to mention things, and then we are gently reproved by our beloved listeners for forgetting to mention anything we could have possibly be mentioning? Well, this time I was forgetting to say, oh, I've written a fantasy heist novel. Yeah! <laughs> it's, it's called The World Wound Gambit, and it's uh, in oh, uh, yeah. Pathfinder novel series. And so I guess I do know something about this. So the trick here is to break down So that tropes. means that you will be uh, the George Clooney in this, and I will be the Brad Pitt. Exactly. Once again, barely distinguishable due to our extreme handsomeness. Um, exactly. And so the... Uh, trick here is to break down the tropes of the basic heist genre. And as we discovered a few weeks ago when we did Heist Movies 101, it turns out that we think of heist movies as having a very defined set of tropes, even though it's actually a fairly narrow corpus of uh, things. But uh, at any rate, you start off with your uh, getting the group together sequence, which suggests that it's more fun to do this as something where you are... Uh, you know, it's not like a long-running thing with all the player characters together, but it's more fun, I think, if you do it either at the beginning of a campaign or as a one-shot, or maybe 
it's your regular group of F20 characters, but they, you jump ahead in time so that they've all been, you know, had reason to separate and they're all off doing other things. And the George Clooney equivalent character, uh, is the one who gets them all back together for, for one last perfect score. Um, and this, uh, the, the getting the group together actually comes from a broader genre of which the heist is a subset, which is the, uh, people on a mission movie. Right. And, uh, the first one of those, or the, the really big influential one at any rate is Seven Samurai. So the first act is all about getting the, the seven together. Uh, but now they don't go off and commit a heist, but that's exactly the same first act as Ocean's Eleven, the, the new version, for example. So, uh, start with that. And so how would you, uh, give guidance to players on how to make the scene where they all agree to do what they're have to do in order to plot work. How do, how do we make that uh, uh, fun and possibly even challenging? I think the first thing that you do is you say, uh, you, a- you ask the player two questions. One, why are you not already part of the crew? And it may be just, we haven't met yet. Uh, if it's the, if you're beginning the game that way. Um, another, I'd like to just, uh, as a sidebar real fast, the other thing you can do is rather than involve your own personal characters, you may have met NPCs who you think would be fun characters to play for a one-off heist sequence within the larger fantasy world. So rather than risk your very valuable druid on this heist, you guys met a different druid or you met a, a hobbit um, uh, somewhere or something else. And you're like, I'd like to play that hobbit in the heist and let the GM make up the character. So you're introducing an NPC as your temporary PC. Anyway, with, with the right existing campaign, that could, that could be super fun because you could play all of the antagonists you've met and haven't killed yet. Right. You know, the, the guy who runs the, uh, scorpion, uh, pit, uh, who's usually the, the, your, your adversary, he's the guy putting the group together and the, you know, the, the wizard who, uh, uh, stole your, uh, amulet. Well, he's got the amulet and you need the amulet to get into the, the tower. So it's even more fun. You can play the bad guys for a little while. Right. So the, the, so you have two questions. One, why are you not part of the crew already? And that could either just be a time thing or it can be a character thing. And two, what do you want out of this heist? And it can be enough gold to, you know, get my kid that operation or that resurrection spell, or it can be, you know, I want to just poke the necromancer in the eye because I hate him, or it can be whatever your motive is that gets you into the heist. And those two motives should both pay off ideally mechanically in the course of the, uh, in the course of the game that at one point the necromancer is like, but you hate him. That's why you weren't part of his crew. Join me and I'll give you enough gold to resurrect your kid or I'll do it myself. And then it's like, oh, man, now I don't know which one I want to do. And that can give you that moment in all good heist movies where you don't know if someone has betrayed you or not, which is another reason not to use your real characters. And then the other thing that you want to do to make that scene interesting is to if they have him have the guy, the, the, the Clooney roll his charisma or her charisma and if they fail, that's the number of other obstacles you are going to, you know, pile into the game. That it's going to be, all right, I'll come, but this has to always be the case. You can't use invisibility because you always steal stuff from us when you use invisibility. And that then when you do use invisibility, those consequences come back mechanically to, to hit the players because it can just be a, a curse. You can lose you know, that many arbitrary levels of, of, um, uh, of ability in something, or it can be a specific, oh, this many dice 
we've now added a new uh, guard blink dog and it's going to uh, attack you because you broke your word to that guy. So the gods have balanced the, the heist, right? Right. And so, uh, and so that brings us to the next step, which is casing the joint. Uh, so you as a, a GM have thought ahead of time, of course, of what the target of the heist is going to be. Yeah, you need a good target. Yeah. And if you're doing this in a fantasy world, you don't want to have it just be a bank, right? That's, but you could do that in a regular heist. Right. So, uh, in World Wound Gambit, the, the target is a giant demonic tower, as in the tower is full of demons and the tower is a demon. And the whole reason they're going uh, to this horrible place called the World Wound is to uh, try and destroy the tower and therefore stop the demon invasion that's uh, headed to all the countries next door and is making it very difficult to uh, be a criminal. It's hard to be a thief running scams and stuff if demons are eating everyone in sight. Right. And so uh, this also then gives you a reason why it can have the sorts of defenses against all of the multiple ways of breaking into places that you find typically on an F20, particularly spell sheet, or uh, because as the characters become more powerful in an F20 game, they gain all sorts of ways of getting into places. Surprise, mm-hmm. surprise. F20 is about getting into places and fighting who's inside. And, and taking the treasure. <laughs> and taking the treasure. So it, it all works, except uh, in a heist, the idea is that it is extraordinarily difficult to get into this particular pro- place, which is why it is full of especially juicy treasure that you want to go to lots of trouble to get. Exactly. So uh, the next step is to look at your character's character sheets with an especially gimlet eye directed at the spells of the spellcasters, and then uh, you know see which uh, things that you can find where they will know ahead of time or know in this first stage where they just case the joint of where the particular challenges of the heist lies. So that if you have a magician who is, you know, his solution to every problem is, well, I just teleport on through with my teleport bubble. Uh, they, When they go initially to case the joint, they see another wizard attempt to get in with the teleport bubble. And, oh, oh, that wizard is now just a few globules of post-wizard flesh. Oh, okay, I guess we can't use the teleport bubble, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Or the thief tries to shadow walk in and there's like, shadow dogs that are in the shadow and it's like i don't want to fight dogs that's why i'm a thief not a fighter exactly and you don't want to make that too attritional on the group that their initial casing of the joint uh then uh wipes them out but rather you want them to seem clever for spotting all of the things before they actually get tripped up by them so the thief goes in and he sees the shadow dogs before he makes the mistake of shadow walking. He goes, oh, right. well, okay, the shadow walking ain't, ain't gonna Yeah, work. lots of, lots of wisdom and intelligence checks at, at this point of the game, I think. How do you do, uh, the, the sequence in heist movies where you have to break through a mechanical barrier writ large, and that can be you have to crack the safe or you have to Catherine Zeta Jones your way through the uh, red laser eye, or you have to do some intricate skill series of skill checks, which are usually not super exciting to play out. Robin, do you have suggestions about making that kind of repetitive skill check? One failure of which ruins the, the fun for everybody. A fun thing to do. I think the trick there is to kind of go backwards and have, you often see the, the next stage in a heist movie is, is often the preparatory theft in which you go and steal the uh, EMP pulse machine right. or you uh, you raid the military installation in order to get the guns for the bank robbery at the end. And so 
rather than, uh, you know, doing the elaborate puzzle thing, uh, you know, even if you use a Jenga tower or like a icebreaker or any of those other sort of manual type games, you could fail. That's not so much fun. So I think you should make it more about going and getting the other thing that you need in order to bring the thing to the door. Because I think that that's something that works extremely well in cinema. The, oh, you almost got it, you almost got it. Oh, no, you didn't. But it, as you suggest, it is uh, hard to do in uh, gaming unless you, you know, you'd have to develop a really super great subsystem. But as you suggest, anything that allows an actual possibility of failure stops the thing dead. Unless, of course, you uh, have decided that you show them failing and then later on you say, and explain why that was just a decoy to right. trick the people in why the you demon faked tower. that to, uh, to get captured and be drawn into the, into the place or whatever. And right. that can actually be another thing is you, is maybe you do one or two of those and you say to the thief character, if you fail, why was that part of your plan? So that yes. instead of going between a outcome that makes the game fun and an outcome that makes the game stupid, you're going, you're picking your cool outcomes. Either you're so cool you got through the laser eye or whatever, uh, the, the beholder laser eye, or you're so cool that you intentionally triggered the beholder laser eye just so that you would be taken into the central access uh, tunnel, which happens to open up from the oubliette because you heard that from an old man who was uh, imprisoned in the necromancer tower a uh, hundred years ago, right? Right. And uh, as you're describing that, the fantasy part of the fantasy heist is often taking familiar heist tropes and then, you know, finding what the D&D equivalent of that is. So as you suggest, uh, you know, instead of uh, infrared eyes, you've got, you know, little demon eyes that are actually, you know, or, uh, you know, your classic fire jet or, or what have you. Another uh, step that uh, at this point, just before you get into the main heist, uh, you also want to have sequences where you actually interact with whoever it is who owns the target of the tower or, or magical glade or whatever it is that you're trying to rip off. This is not a feature of all heist films, and you can get away without it, but, uh, you know, the really classic ones uh, have some sense of who it is that you're ripping off, because, of course, it's more satisfying if they're left at the end uh, shaking their fists, or because this is F20, the thing that you probably want to put at the end that you don't get in a typical heist is a fight. Right. You know, you can only go so long making skill checks in F20 before uh, people get a little antsy and want to roll those uh, D20s. So it might be the case that you have to uh, overcome a, a gaggle of enemies before you get to the main heist, or I think perhaps even more satisfyingly, you pull off the heist, you're counting your dough, and then the enforcers uh, come uh, uh, busting through the door so that the, uh, you know, the demon's army comes after you. And so uh, in World Wound Gambit is not giving anything away to say that uh, there is a, a fight after they achieve their objective because, as we said, F20. A third thing that you can do with that, and I think we've skipped the meeting part, and I want to talk about the meeting as well, but you have accomplished the heist, and now you're in the middle of the temp of the temple. You're in the middle of the tower. You're in the middle of the glade and all of its defenses point out. Now you can teleport and shadow walk and open up with rings of fireballs all you want and basically blow yourself an exit because it's not like you care. This is not America where the cops will care that you blew up a necromancer tower. This is just fantasy land. So that can be your fight. But it, what makes it tactically interesting is you're just running away. 
you're not going anywhere. And the faster you can move out of the precincts of the Necromancer Tower, the better you do. So stopping to fight is fun and it, it kills bad guys that are chasing you, but it also delays your escape with the solid gold goodies. So that provides some tactical juice to what would otherwise just be a boss fight at the end. And your goal ideally is that the necromancer never catches up with you because you're just one step ahead of him the whole way fighting his uh, mooks and guards on the way out, as opposed to on the way in like a classic dungeon. But I want to talk about meeting the necromancer because, or whoever the bad guy is. Right. Say bad guy. The property holder. He could be a good guy, for God's sake. <laughs> yes. We've already specified that you might be the bad guys. Yes. But uh, I think that this can be a fun thing because you can say as part of the heist that you need a drop of his blood or you need um, his signature on a piece of paper or you need some kind of a thing that's the equivalent of, you know, lifting his um, uh, his key card or taking uh, the codes off of his comp- off of his phone or whatever. And. It can be a magical equivalent of that, and that gives your bard something to do, and it gives your thief something to do. Instead of sneak, they can use their proper thief skills, and everyone the, – the the illusionist can cast disguise on everybody so that when you meet him, you're just, hey, we're uh, evil demon worshippers from the other side of the mountains, and we're just here because we've heard what a great establishment you have, and we've brought you this giant severed dinosaur head that you can probably use in your rituals – and you've stolen that in the previous theft, or the giant severed dinosaur head actually has some sort of thing that you need to get into his uh, temple to allow you to get in at all. And while you're doing the meeting, that's when the bard distracts him with a line of patter, uh, and the gnome illusionist sneaks up and, you know, zoop, steals a little bit of his blood or hair or whatever it is that you need. And then you roll that secretly so that they don't know if the necromancer is twigged to what you just did. And then... Obviously, on their way out, one of them, you know, catches their arm on a nail that is protruded somehow. And it's like, oh, you've left a little bit of your blood behind, too. Don't worry about that. I'll destroy it ritually. Have fun over on the other side of the mountains, fellow bad guys. Necromancers don't know what to do with a little bit of your blood at all. At all. And and so you can you can really milk that both for the sort of character drama that you're talking about. Meet the meet your foe, but also letting player characters do things that are kind of outside their wheelhouse but are should be super in their wheelhouse. So it's competence, but it's a different flavor of competence than they're normally expressing when it's just, hey, Bard, sing us a song about killing bugbears, right? Right. Now, when you come to the end, uh, you may be trying to emulate the Ocean's formula in which they turn out to be uh, cleverer than everybody, and there's a little, there's a, you know, there's a hiccup at the end, but then it turns out that they planned for that all along and everything is fine. Or you may... Uh, if you hover, look around at your, uh, players and see that they feel a sense of anticlimax, that the heistiness of it has, uh, drained away the, the fantasy role playing part of it, you can then, uh, find a way to give them a twist where in a fantasy world, the treasure that you've gotten might itself turn out to be somewhat dangerous. So, uh, you may not know exactly what is in the chest, except you know that the, uh, a wizard's guild is willing to pay you thousands of gold for it. Well, you know, once you, it, it opens up and uh, you can't get it closed again. And, oh, there's a sphere of annihilation inside, or there's a, uh, you know, the next generation of, of demon is, is pupating in an, in an egg cocoony thing inside or, or what have you. So that if the players want to have another challenge thrown at them, uh, that is sort of less, uh, obvious and clear kind of thing that's going to happen as the end of a heist would be, you can think about, you know, what sort of loop a uh, 
fantasy world to throw at your players uh, once they find out what the treasure really is. And another way you can mechanically justify those, oh, no, we meant for that to happen, is way back during the casing scene, one of the ways to make that interesting is when they roll their int or their wisdom to check the defenses, if they rolled a 20 or they rolled it in the critical range or they rolled whatever, mark that down. That's a free, oh, we meant for that to happen. See, what we actually did was this. And that lets them have the fun of doing that retcon, but makes it not well, we're always going to get to retcon because they know they've only rolled three above 16s during that whole session, and they've just used two of them to get away from the blink dogs and the um, uh, living purple gas, and now we've only got one left, and things are we're not done. So that can add some of the uh, fun of that uh, flashback without vitiating the tension if you know, oh, no matter what happens, we'll be able to say, oh, we planned it. Actually, you've only captured our homunculuses, and we're miles away, eating leaves and having fun. In fact, uh, we're miles away on the other side of this commercial, waiting for you with another segment. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pograin Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The retinal scan and the background check, and in this case, a uh, a suspiciously high-quality box of Cuban cigars, tell us that we've once more stumbled into the top-secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. This time around, uh, Patreon backer Andrew Miller would like us to talk about the fat Leonard scandal. And so uh, this is about a defense contractor known as Leonard Glenn Francis. And you might say, wait a minute, someone in this day and age, because this is a current story, has Fat Leonard as a nickname? That seems somewhat uh, Damon Runyon-esque. Well, he's based in Singapore, where people still have that that particular nickname. Body shaming awareness has uh, not really permeated uh, South Asia, or East Asia, I guess. But anyway, Leonard Glenn Francis has uh, pled guilty to bribery and $35 million uh, in fraud uh, for a series of uh, a massive uh, run 
of uh, bribery of uh, naval officers that ran from 2006 to uh, 2013. Uh, at least nine sailors from the USS Blue Ridge uh, have been uh, implicated, and it looks like probably a lot of others were also getting their uh, their naval beaks wet. Uh, the USS Blue Ridge is the sort of the floating uh, HQ of the Seventh Fleet. It's sort of like a, a Pentagon unto itself on the water. Do you have uh, more to tell us about it? About the Blue Ridge? Um, yeah. It's an old boat. It's Vietnam era. Um, but they've got it jammed to the gills with uh, all the electronics that you need to monitor the whole Seventh Fleet. So it's not even so much necessarily the floating Pentagon, although there's some of that. It's also sort of, I guess, the floating Fort Meade also. It, it does command and control operations for the uh, for the Navy. And that's what made it exciting to uh, Leonard Francis, because he owns, among other things, a fleet of tugboats. Yeah. So if you uh, own a fleet of tugboats and want to make money off them from the Navy, your tugboats have to be where the Navy boats are when they come to port. So you can tug them on in. And, uh, and guess what? He went to extraordinary lengths to know, uh, which is why he targeted uh, the Blue Ridge. Apparently, he also sort of kind of got his fingers into other ships. But this one was the, the jewel in the crown because it's the ship that knew where all the ships were going to be or could tell the other ships where to go. And therefore, if you, like a, uh, you know, everybody who lives in a city has seen uh, tow truck operators all arrive at the scene of an accident and then argue over who gets to get the fat bank from uh, towing that car away. Well, uh, he was getting his uh, tugboats on the scene. And uh, uh, can you want to talk a bit more about uh, the various inducements he offered uh, sailors and officers willing to tell him where the ships were headed? He had so many inducements. Um, he would obviously he'd pick up your uh, dinner. He'd have a big dinner for everybody. He'd have parties on the boat. He'd have parties on the Blue Ridge. He'd have lengthy drunken orgies. And I used both of those terms advisedly. There's uh, one of the naval officers that he suborned uh, wrote him an email saying, I can't remember the last time I was drinking for 36 hours straight. Um, he would always show up with his limousines crammed to the gills with an elite. Uh, what did he call it? The Navy SEAL prostitutes. That would, uh, that he would, he picked an elite team of prostitutes and deploy them to the various, uh, ports of call to service, uh, his, do I want to say clients? What do I want to say? Uh, targets, I guess. Uh, bribery, uh, targets, yeah. And of course, the other thing that, you know, it's bad enough that this guy did this, but at one point, uh, one of the guys, he was, you know, helping out with, um, uh, some gambling debts or whatever, and the guy says, I've spent all the bribe money you gave me. I need some more bribe money to not go bankrupt and get you investigated. And he writes back and says, then give me the classified deployment orders for the seventh fleet. And the guy does. And, you know, first of all, that's bad enough. But second of all, I'm going to theorize here that fat Leonard in Singapore, which is basically the Berlin of the Pacific in terms of spy operations is not running the tightest ship in the world when it comes to protecting his own records from Chinese espionage. So everything that we, that these guys gave to fat Leonard went right to Beijing. I find it impossible to believe that he was carrying on like this without some Chinese asset in his own operation, feeding it all upstairs to Beijing. So it's not just a hilarious story of sex parties and drunken revelry and overcharging for tugboats as bad as that would be. It's also a real security risk, and frankly, it's kind of it's kind of disturbing that only two of the Navy admirals that have been implicated in the scandal have been charged. 
uh, and another six were disciplined by the Navy. But it seems like this is the sort of thing over and over and over in the article. They say, we have no idea how this could have happened. It's like kind of should be your job to know exactly how this could have happened. You know, we, we sent out the ethics email. And then they still went away with those nice women to eat uh, $10,000 meals in a five-star hotel. How could that have happened? <laughs> well, as we've uh, observed in, in past uh, similar stories, this is the advantage of uh, targeting a government entity or really yeah. any institution that is uh, uh, more afraid of being embarrassed than it is of losing millions of dollars of money, and in this case, crucial intelligence, because no one in the na- naval hierarchy has an incentive in really busting as many people as were probably uh, receiving uh, uh, lavish gifts and, and dinners. There were Michelin-starred restaurants. Uh, uh, the wives of various officers got uh, extremely expensive uh, jewelry and watches. And, and so, purses and things. Yeah. So there's a whole network of people who together... Right. Uh, you know, we're quite happy to be, uh, there's the misuse from- of artifacts connected to Douglas MacArthur. That's in the story. So, uh, <laughs> how do we turn this into, uh, something that is, uh, fodder for a, uh, a gaming scenario? Because it's a, uh, a fascinating story. In a way, it's sort of elemental in its simplicity. It's, uh, you know, you can imagine a, you know, a, a, a Wolf of Wall Street style movie being uh, made about this, which would have all of the same ingredients of that story. But how do we, uh, genre it up a little? Where's the, uh, where's our hook to turn this into an adventure? Well, I mean, I think first of all, um, being able to get access to the command and control, uh, ship of the seventh fleet is, is super valuable in a, just a straight up spy game in a Delta Green sort of a situation. Uh, the Blue Ridge would have been, whether it knew it or not, running a second conspiracy where it's commanding uh, and providing coordination for Delta Green operations against the Mythos in the Pacific. So the Delta Green operations could have been exposed. If Is, is there something that people might not know about uh, that ship when it first commissioned in 1970-71? What secret from the fall of Delta Green days might that ship contain? Well, it, um, uh, it's, it began serving in uh, the North Atlantic, so... There may be some sort of uh, deep one story back there. Then it served in the tail end of the Vietnam War. It was part of the um, Easter offensive against the North Vietnamese, which worked, uh, you know, it, it worked in the short term, like most things the Vietnam War did. Um, and it spent a, you know, a, a lot of time sort of progressing around in that neck of the woods between Vietnam and the Philippines. So any of your weirdness that might have occurred uh, in that era could have been taken on board. There could have been some situation where they, uh, they, uh, the, the deep ones that had marked them in the North Atlantic marked them again in the South Pacific. There could be some sort of artifact that was taken on board during a shore leave and that has been sitting in the main, uh, command cabin this whole time. Uh, any number of stuff. A lot of it is just, you know, what do you want to have happened to the, uh, Blue Ridge? That you can then say, oh, but it certainly was involved in a lot of stuff like that. Another thing that it did, uh, this is post fall of Delta Green, but it's, uh, it, it ran the, um, uh, boat people rescue operation when it was pulling, uh, the, uh, exiled and, uh, fled Vietnamese, uh, out of the water. Um, it ran that operation. So any of those refugees might have, you know, concealed among them a chocho or they might have been bringing out their old family treasure, which happens to be a powerful mythos or anti mythos artifact. Or it could just have been a situation where 
someone on the Blue Ridge back in the 80s was also taking a little money from somebody to maybe let their brother on and not this other guy. And the other guy who didn't get let on was maybe uh, uh, mad about that and, and said, hey, cultists of Jar, I know I, I know where that boat is and I can hook you up to it. And maybe Fat Leonard is sort of the grown out, blown out extrusion of those cultists that, that, um, uh, that, that created him, uh, like a, like a, like a tulpa or like a, a big, um, uh, a blow seed from, from something, uh, in uh, Singapore or somewhere in the Southeast. When we think about Knights Black Agents, we think vampires need help crossing water, but also that vampires would be vulnerable to water if they tried to escape from a boat. So perhaps, uh, the, the ship, uh, either the actual ship or a fictional version of that in our version of the story has the coffin of a legendary vampire deep in its hold. And the whole point of the mission is just to keep going, keep constantly moving so that that vampire can never get onto shore and uh, start uh, destroying uh, uh, things or people. And this vampire could be uh, one from legends we know, or it could be the the one who ate half a platoon back in uh, Vietnam. And uh, so your mission uh, might be to get on there and make sure you destroy the vampire for good, or you could be being tricked into getting on there and letting the vampire free. And it may very well be that the uh, tugboat operator, uh, that their ultimate mission is, yes, of course, they want their tugboat operation to prosper, but really they want to finally tug that vampire to shore and get him safely uh, to a vampire safe house, and that's really the point of the whole uh, objective. And so that could uh, put you in several positions. You could be the agents who are being tricked into performing the extraction, or you could be the uh, people trying to figure out why uh, money from vampire bank accounts is going into Fat Leonard's account and funding his tugboat empire and finding out what he's up to and therefore follow the money, find out what he's doing, and then that leads you to the ship and uh, leads you to the vampire, who, uh, in this instance, you do not want to allow on shore. Of course, there has to be a reason there why they wouldn't just kill him. Right. One of the things that makes that particular notion of the sort of eternal travel of this vampire fun is that the Blue Ridge is the second oldest ship in service in the U.S. Navy, the first oldest, of course, being the USS Constitution, which is a museum, although it's still technically a serving warship. But the Blue Ridge has basically been continuously sailing since 1971, and that's exactly the sort of thing that makes you think, well, maybe there is a vampire in it, and that's why this ship keeps being used as this command ship instead of a newer ship. Right, because you've, you've got to have an explanation for why this ship is always on the move, mm-hmm. because, you know, then it would be evident to everyone and not just player characters. Um, so have we uh, failed to uh, glean any potential from this story before we move on? I mean, we've done Delta Green and we've done Knights Black Agents. I think the other sort of possibility with uh, Fat Leonard getting his access to the boat, I mean, this can be a straight-up uh, sort of a superhero scam, right? Where Fat Leonard is basically the kingpin of of, uh, of Singapore. And the reason that he's trying to get access to this ship is he's trying to find out where Captain America is and what's going on with S.H.I.E.L.D. and whatever else. So you can run it in a Mutant City Blues sort of a situation where your Mutant City Dress Blues because your naval superheroes who are all um, uh, deploying with the U.S. Navy in various ports and doing some of them are secret ops and some of them are regular ops. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, that sounds great. Well, I, I think we've come up with a bunch of different ways to uh, use this story in the tradecraft of your own game and can therefore, it's time for us to be tugged, hopefully by honest tugboats, to the next segment. 
Hey Ken, what happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Gain the toxin resistance of such Patreon backers as... Anderson Todd. Andrew Dacey. Jacob True. Mark Galliotti. And Stephen Brandon. The chutter of IBM Selectric Keys, the glurgle of mid-price bourbon into the jelly jar, and the susurrus of cursing wafting up from the screen tell us once more we've entered the office where we learn how to write good. And in the how to write good office, the jar we pour our bourbon into is a glim, and the typewriter is a chunker, and the screen <laughs> is still the same headache-inducing monster that it always is, but we have a cool name for it because we're talking about making up slang and Robin you've been, as we alluded to, I believe, in a previous segment, making up some slang your own self for your upcoming novel, The Missing and the Lost, part of the Yellow King role-playing game Extravaganza Experience. Um, do you want to talk, just jump right into your own experiences making up that specific slang? Yeah, l- let's talk briefly about the process of making up slang, and then I'll mention some examples and see if you can guess uh, what they mean, and we can uh, go from there. So, cool. And as we mentioned in our previous segment about game fiction, the great thing about inventing game in a fictional context is that you're much more likely to arrive at something that uh, you can picture someone saying if you're mm-hmm. writing dialogue, assuming you're writing acceptable dialogue, and that often in game books, the uh, nicknames for things, uh, particularly the nicknames for things referred to in game terms, are... Uh, you gotta be careful or they'll be no more euphonious than the actual game terms are. And they'll, uh, you know, they'll sound kind of weird. And so the, the way to arrive at terms is first of all, find a need for them while writing dialogue. And second of all, think of where, uh, slang terms come from in our world. With this novel, which is set in the aftermath setting of uh, the Yellow King, uh, which is an alternate reality, but not an alternate timeline. It's a, a supernatural drifted world, which uh, gave me maximum latitude uh, to base things on the real world to whatever extent I wanted to on the grounds that there was some sort of reality leakage. But in general, I tried to respect the fact that history has been very different since before uh, 1920. But when you're uh, reading a book and there is uh, imaginary words in it, you want to be able to intuit them from context. So you, they have to be uh, pretty simple because it's awkward to then have 
some writers will have a little footnote that explains what the slang term means, but I think that defeats the purpose. Uh, and often it was a case of finding terms that were wrong to use the the word from our reality because the history was different. So examples, uh, there, it referred to a character who was uh, busted by the security police. This is, briefly speaking, this is a world where the Yellow King-related forces had a dictatorship in America for 100 years. The heroes are the ex-revolutionaries who brought about the overthrow of that uh, government, and of course they had a secret police. So it refers to one character who was uh, picked up by the DIS, that was the you know the equivalent of the Stasi, for didozine distribution. So didozine, not a word that we actually use in our world, but A, you can tell right away what that means, and secondly, you can sort of into, oh, that's the version of Samizdat, because of course they wouldn't talk about this term from... Uh, Eastern Europe, because Eastern Europe uh, doesn't have the same history in this world. So I'm going to give you a few uh, terms and see uh, if you can uh, guess what they refer to. What do you think a bunk is in the, in this world? A bunk? A bunk. In, in this world? Well, it's not a place to lie down, and it's not uh, running away. I think a bunk is a bad message. Uh, a bunk is a safe house. So it's just safe short house. for bunker. Right. Um, and so when you see that in context, uh, it A, feels like something people would actually say in this world. It's not yeah. something we say here, but it's perfectly clear. It's a derivation of, of something else. Um, similarly, uh, if you are coffined, uh, what does that mean in this world? He was coffined. He, he was popping or coffin? Not coffined. Coffined. Um, yes. That means he went in the suicide chamber, right? Uh, that means he was, he was murdered by the, uh, secret police. Um, and so, uh, because it's something that happens. It's like to disappeared. You. Right. So it does mean you were killed, but there's a connotation to it that it, so that would be the equivalent, for example, of disappeared, mm-hmm. uh, in Latin American uh, countries. There's the verb coin. What do you think it is to, uh, uh, to be coined? To be coined is to, um, uh, to be coined is to be named as an informer. Uh, that's very, very close. Uh, it's, uh, as, as you, uh, intuit, it is based on the saying drop a dime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, it's, uh, the act of informing to, to rat out or squeal. So, uh, he called up and coined on us would be the, the use there. And, uh, another example of, of a term that I needed a different version of and wanted it to be absolutely clear what it meant. Uh, was uh, the term wet work. In our history, we use that all the time, but its derivation is from Soviet intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can't have that. No Soviets in this timeline. So dark work. It means exactly the same thing. Totally clear off the top of the head that that's what that means. Right. Another thing that I found myself, that the great thing about an alternate reality with different slang is if there are words that you want to use a lot, and there aren't enough synonyms for them in the English language, and you would like to have word variety, guess what? You can just make up you words make them up. <laughs> to, to fix that. So uh, I often want to be uh, describing who's looking at who, but the word look, you can only, even though it's a simple common word, and you can use a lot, uh, you know, compared to flim-flam or masquerade, you know, more the more weight or difference a word has, the fewer times you can use it. Look, you can use that a lot with it and get away with it, but I still wanted another one. Right. So in this world, people eagle. Eagle. Yeah. So right. uh, he, he was eagling me. In addition and, to peeping and glimming and all the other ones. Right. Yes. Um, and, you know, again, that comes from 
It's a one step up from a familiar idiom in that case, you know, keeping an eagle eye. And right. uh, conversely, a word that this is one of the I, I think at the risk of exactly encapsulating the difference between you and me, I would have found it very hard to resist going back through Mencken and the other historical slang dictionaries and finding actual slang from the period before the Yellow King took over. So, say, 1919, give or take, and use that in the way that, oh, it just got held in amber because the Yellow King is this weird reactionary force that freezes up society in so many ways. Maybe not entirely, but sprinkling a lot of pre-1919 slang into it just to sort of add that sort of topographical quality that, that slang should have. I did that. In Yay! my first draft, and I undid it in my second. Oh. Um, and the reason is it seems too old timey. And, uh, you, there's definitely I, the idea that this setting is frozen in amber. Like, you know, basically jazz is still new. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, there's the risk was, it was just sort of, uh, in effect for modern readers using a lot of, uh, 1920s slang. A lot of that is actually even more inaccessible or reads as kind of corny than a new made-up word that fits perfectly in, in the thing. Um, now, there are certainly things that kind of sound like that. So, example, the idiom, put the yak on you, is means that he t- talked at you in a one-sided manner for a long mm-hmm. time. So you were monologued at. And, of course, you just sort of also need some generalized terms of abuse. And right. the trick there is they just have to have a sound of a term of abuse that sounds sort of contemptuous. And these can be based on a real ordinary word, um, and, um, in a novel, you don't have to go into what the whole etymology of how this became an insult term would be. Uh, so for example, in our world, Nimrod has become just a general term of contempt and abuse because of a Bugs Bunny cartoon mm-hmm. in which Bugs Bunny refers to Elmer Fund as Nimrod, who of course mythologically is the mythological hunter. being of, uh, of the hunt. But nobody knows the, you know, that's several layers down of, derivation to get to just Nimrod kind of being a low-level insult. Uh, so, for example, uh, corncob is something you might call someone if you want to uh, assert that they're kind of lame. Or uh, just yud, Y-U-D, is, uh, you know, a person worthy of contempt. And like uh, all of the other sort of low-level insults in our wor- world, uh, each of them I designed to have its own particular connotation. So in my notes of where all the slang terms are, it doesn't say insult, it says lamer or you know person worthy of contempt or or right. so forth they're, they're in the yellow king world there's a the schlemiel and a schlemazel just like in our world except that it's not that right it's it's other uh, similar terms that's actually an interesting question i assume that uh, the castain regime being what it was that there's much less yiddish derived slang did you find yourself having to go in and take out um the terms that are um our own sort of very comfortable uh, use of Yiddish and other and uh, black slang that no one would use in, in the world of uh, Castaigne's America? In order to be able to have a world with diversity in it, uh, the history establishes that about 1960, the anti-immigration measures discussed in the repair of reputation story are reversed. Okay. Uh, nonetheless, I did make sure that I avoided slang terms that were clearly uh, derived from a, a particular uh, group in favor of things that were part of this alien world. So uh, I don't think schmuck or, uh, you know, any of the, any of those other terms that have that resonance uh, were in there because that's an opportunity, you know, the or obvious cat. insult word. Yeah. It's much more uh, 
flavorful to come up with something new. Again, you don't want to spend a lot of any time at all with the characters talking about where the slang terms come from, because like Nimrod, yeah, no, you do not. they probably don't know. And then there's the final thing is also just words that feel like specialty words for the characters in their particular world within the world. In this case, uh, former uh, insurgents who are now trying to figure out what to do with themselves. So uh, again, it's sort of, a, there's stuff that's kind of like cop talk, but it's not because they were, they're former revolutionaries who are now, you know, celebrated war heroes. So a walk around, for example, is a 22. It's a kind of pistol because it's mm-hmm. the thing you can easily walk around with. And the, uh, the DIS, the secret police at the time wouldn't have uh, caught you or the, you know, you got to have a couple of acronyms in there too. Right. So, uh, KSF is a key shadowy figure. And that's the term that you would use to refer to, uh, the people on your own side, the revolutionaries, uh, sort of guiding the action who you didn't know who they were because of course you had a cell structure, but right. you knew that you were getting orders from the KSF. And then other things like, uh, in order to distinguish an actual freedom fighter from all the wannabes, you call the struggle the effort because the effort sounds, you know, it's even more downplayed, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're not glorifying yourself. It's the, uh, you're given the credit for, uh, you know, you don't have to call it the struggle. Other people call it struggle for you. Eh, it's just the effort. Just the effort. Just what you do. Just the job. Yeah. Um, and another term, for example, is, is someone on the board? Uh, and that's an, uh, again, an obvious metaphor there. That means that they are a player in the covert game. Now the tables have turned and the former members of the secret police are the ones who are in hiding and the former covert uh, revolutionaries are the ones who are out in the open. But if the revolutionaries are still doing anything, they're still on the board. Mm. But if they've retired, they've, they've left the board. That one I'll bet is, is, is one that in the world of missing the lost TV shows feels just as annoying as in the wind does in American police shows right now. Yes. They, they haven't quite gotten all those shows on the air yet to annoy anyone, but they, they certainly will. they will be, It'll be the equivalent of uh, reach out. Reach out. Oh yeah. The, the, the well, reach out is actually uh, a Carcosum slang. Yes, that's and it's uh, permeated all realities. Right. So I'll give you one more to guess before we go. A dirty chateau. What is a dirty chateau? A dirty chateau. Um, a dirty chateau is a, a place that's been compromised by Carcosum uh, attention or infiltration. That's uh, pretty darn close. And from context, you would have been able to absolutely tell. That it's the equivalent of a DACA. Right. The, uh, swanky, uh, houses that the, uh, high members of the security establishment and other casting related officials had tucked away where they got up to skeevy casting related things. And mm-hmm. again, another example of, uh, taking a term that doesn't, uh, translate because that culture wasn't that culture in this world. And, uh, also the derivation of that is just something completely random. Uh, and there's a, a Rye Cooter song. Uh, on one of his newer records called Dirty Chateau, and it happened to be playing at about the same, same time I was trying to come up with the term. It's like, uh, Providence has supplied this slang term for me. <laughs> and if Y. Cooter exists in this world, uh, his records don't sound uh, anything at all like these ones. They're probably hot jazz records, but um, maybe even that, that record in that other reality has uh, Dirty Chateau as one of the tracks on it. Um, anyway, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, get off the board and uh, into this next commercial and to whatever lies on the other side.
what I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think Paranoia, Go Bags, Guns... And Opera. Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. The Clash of Swords, the Creak of Sandals, and in this case, the Quacking of Toxic Ducks tell us that we are once more in the History Hub, but this is a particular... Ancient uh, history hut full of poison and in- intrigue. And uh, this is uh, based on a question from Patreon backer Carl Schmidt. Uh, this is one of the uh, questions that was originally framed to us as a Ken's Time Machine question, but it didn't really imply an alternate timeline. So uh, in keeping with the edict recently passed down by Time Incorporated, we were turning it into a history hut, perhaps with a guest appearance by the Time Machine later on. Uh, and so he wants to know about Mithridates, the sixth, Mithridates Eupater, Mithridates the, the Great of Pontus, otherwise known as the Poison King, his uh, reign in uh, Pontus, which was, uh, wh- where was Pontus, Ken, roughly? Pontus is uh, northeastern Turkey, modern Turkey, uh, the coast of the Black Sea, basically the eastern half of the southern coast of the Black Sea is Pontus. Right. And so uh, he lived from uh, 120 to 63 uh, B.C., and uh, the best source for his story is Adrian Mayer's uh, book, The Poison King, which I think both of us have read. You read yes, it, right? and both of us love very, very much, yes. as we do all Adrian Mayer works, frankly. Yes, and there will be dramatic reading later on of a couple of passages. <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, uh, so the thing is that if you were uh, a, a ruler in the ancient world, anywhere in this area, your greatest source of danger was even more so than every other king and royal household neighboring you, was, of course, the various people in your own royal household. This was uh, murdering people was something you did to stay on the throne, and the people you murdered uh, were often your own mothers and fathers and sons. And uh, if people remember the scene in Goodfellas, uh, where the Lorraine Bracco character is talking about how and everyone was named Polly, and they all married girls named Marie. Well, here, everybody's <laughs> named Mithridates, and they all marry girls named Laodice, who were their sisters. Uh, and so Mithridates' mother, Laodice, uh, ruled as regent after uh, Mithridates V was uh, poisoned at a banquet of his own throwing, uh, which, hmm, hmm. wonder what... Huh, huh. Who could have done it? I don't know, but... At uh, least we're baffled. Yes, uh, but it turned out that uh, this instilled in our Mithridates a lifelong fear of being poisoned, uh, perhaps by his mom. And uh, in <laughs> fact, uh, when she was ruling his regent, there's a point where he sort of goes off on a sort of a combination sort of uh, adventure quest, vision quest, don't get poisoned by your mom quest. And he finds his buddies who are sort of his running buddies for, for years and uh, meets some... Uh, 
uh, crazy uh, tribes and clans that we'll uh, describe later. But once he's done this, he gets back, gets on the throne. I forget what happens. Does he kill his mom or just in prison for a while? Um, she died in prison, probably of natural causes, but maybe the natural cause of eating poison while you're in prison. Who can say? Right. And his brother Mithridates, <laughs> because why stick to one? <laughs> yeah. Also, maybe died in prison. Let's just say he died. We know he died. And so, uh, so once Mithridates gets to the throne, you know, he's a pretty amazing dude. He speaks 21 languages, uh, and, uh, he decides that, uh, the problem with the immediate area around Pontus is that he doesn't control it. Yeah. And so uh, he gets to work uh, annexing uh, uh, places and making alliances. And uh, uh, unfortunately, one of the places that he tries to uh, sort of suborn, uh, the Romans figure is theirs, uh, which kicks off the first of three Mithridatic uh, wars. You want to tell us a bit more about, uh, about them? Uh, the Mithridatic wars basically um, are the natural consequence of a rising kingdom, Pontus, and an existing power, Rome. Rome ruling the, uh, what to the Romans was the east and to Pontus would be, I guess, the west. Uh, the, but the rest of Turkey, the rest of Anatolia, um, mostly through, uh, cutouts. So they have a bunch of puppet kings that pay taxes or tribute to the Romans. And so the Romans don't have to, you know, p- build roads and do any work. The Romans have the province of Asia, which is just the sort of uh, richest, most citified portion of far western Turkey uh, or Anatolia, and the whole rest of it is just run by these cutouts. And since uh, Mithridates can say, "Well, they're not part of Rome; they're an independent kingdom," so why would you care if I invade them? And the Romans are like, "You don't get the point of them being our puppets. It's called a protection racket for a reason." Yeah. And so Mithridates claimed descent from Alexander the Great and from the Persian emperors to sort of unify in himself all local opposition to Rome uh, because the Greeks didn't like the Romans marching around and throwing their weight around. And the Persians um, uh, certainly didn't like it because they've had enough of people from the West beating them up. So for Mithridates to sort of say, I am the incarnation of the East uh, is a big sort of a political power play. And, probably caused a lot of genuine pro-Pontus feelings in these puppet states, which can't have been too happy being Roman puppet states anyway. And it caused such an excess of feeling in Roman Asia that a whole bunch of the Asiatics, or who may have mostly been Greeks, um, rose up and slaughtered all of the Romans that they could possibly lay their hands on in 88 BC, fundamentally wiping out the Roman colony structure. Yes, in an incident known as the Asiatic Vespers. Yes. Uh, which is a back formation from the Sicilian Vespers, which actually happened on the Vespers. Uh, people will perhaps have noted that there were no Vespers before the, uh, institution of the, uh, of the, of the Christian church, but that's what they call it now when a bunch of people all rise up in a bunch of different cities and massacre somebody. And in this case, they were massacring Italians, not massacring the French, but the basic, uh, the basic formula works the same way. Right. So much later known as the Asiatic Vespers. Right. At the time, it was known as that cool thing I did to the Romans. Or, in Roman terms, that thing that makes us want to kill Mithridates. But that turns out to be... a lot. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Because that was considered uh, beyond the bounds of uh, acceptable warfare and behavior. And uh, so uh, the Romans really had a high motivation to go after him, in addition to the fact that he kept wanting to conquer their puppet states. Um, And he never beat Rome, but he lost to them so effectively for so many years that he was one of the the biggest 
thorns in, in the side of Rome ever. Because the Romans at this time are also dealing with uh, the civil war between Marius and Sulla. They're dealing with the uh, revolt in Spain under Sertorius. They're dealing with a major pirate infestation uh, between Sicily and Crete and uh, southern Anatolia. And they're dealing with the revolt of Spartacus. And all of these things keep churning up while they're just trying to get 10 minutes to themselves to beat on Mithridates. And they never do. And one of the sort of lost opportunities that I suspect may have been the initial impetus for Patrian back at Carl Schmidt's question is what might have happened if Mithridates had caught the wave and everyone had been able to get together and bang on Rome simultaneously, wouldn't that have been neat? And I guess that sort of depends on your opinion of the Roman Empire, uh, but it certainly would have been different. Um, the, the Pontic Kingdom was very much one of those places that looks like it was going to sort of be a big deal, unify uh, the Anatolian highland. It, it basically did for about uh, 20 years, give or take. And uh, with the, uh, he had a strong ally, I think it was his in-law, uh, to grannies of Armenia. So his rear uh, flank was pretty much secure. So all he had to do was fight the Romans coming in from the West. And he did that, as you say, with moderate efficacy, although never with actual uh, Hannibalic skill. So before we get to his ironic death, uh, we have to explain why it would be ironic, and uh, this comes to explaining why he would be called the Poison King. Now, we've already established that uh, he had a high motivation to not be poisoned, yes. uh, which all of us do, but he uh, had more specific reason not to be poisoned, and he went to a lot of effort to learn how to become immune to all sorts of poisons. So uh, he was also a, a scientist as, as part of his project of not being poisoned, and learned about the whole principle of the antidote. And uh, at least in legend, he uh, slowly exposed himself to all sorts of different poisons in order to become immune from them. And if you want to do that, Pontus uh, in this era is the time to do that because poison is everywhere around you. And here's where I want to do my first uh, quick dramatic reading from Adrian Mayer. Wild honey distilled by bees from the nectar of poisonous rhododendrons, an oleander so profuse on the coast, could kill a man. Even the flesh of Pontic ducks was poisonous. The ducks thrived on hellbore and other baneful plants, and the bees enjoyed a strange immunity to poison. And uh, after a while, so did Mithridates. So, uh, Ken, this, this proved inconvenient when the Romans finally closed in, because mm -hmm. uh, traditionally... When the Romans are closing in on you, you don't let them capture you. That that is very bad, not to mention humiliating. So if you possibly it's very can, low, very low, it, it makes the other people make fun of you. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, Mithridates, as as one of the stories and the better story, and therefore for the purposes of this podcast, the true story goes, he tried to poison himself, and then, dope! I've spent my lifetime becoming immune to poison, and when, was unable to do so, and had to get his. Uh, loyal retainer to uh, finally kill him with a sword. His loyal Gaul, uh, Bituitus, stabbed him. One of the things that we are skipping over, and perhaps we are uh, intending to get to it, maybe, Robin, you had a plan to get to it, but well, perhaps the, you're fact getting is, to it now. the fact is that in addition to regular Pontus, he was also king of what they called the Pontic Chersonese, or the Tauric Chersonese, the Crimea and the area of the northern coast of the, of the Black Sea, he beat the Scythians in battle, which most people couldn't do. Admittedly, this is sort of late in the Scythian game, but he did do it and took over that whole northern area. And that was where he was trying to raise his 
what I guess would have been his fourth army to attack the Romans when the Scythians finally got sick of him. He raised a lot of, of armies. His, his last his last wife was a Amazon. Yes. Her name was Hypsocratia, and she was a warrior woman of the Caucasus Mountains. Um, she fought alongside him. She was uh, skilled in bow and spear. She was super good looking and super uh, hated Romans just as much as him. So that was a lovely thing that they had in common. So, you know, he's got Amazon girlfriends he hangs out in the Scythian territories with magical shamans who teach him the ways of secret mushroom lore. Uh, Mithridates is the next step to being some kind of mythical figure. And even in the sort of uh, Renaissance, he was considered a mythical figure, A, because he knew all those languages, and B, because he was immune to all those poisons. And that's two superpowers that you wouldn't have thought uh, would go together, but with Mithridates uh, right in the character sheet, they absolutely do. Yes, and his other superpower was, as you suggest with the Scythians, of defeating and befriending, or just befriending, uh, warrior groups that uh, traditionally one did not succeed in befriending, let alone bringing into your army. And another example of a group that he uh, met uh, earlier in his sort of not-be-poisoned-by-mum-wrong-bringer was as follows, and again, this is from Adrian Mayer. The Moissaneki turret folk were, quote, worst of the savage mountain tribes, unquote, in Strabo's opinion. Subsisting on chestnuts, pickled fish, and the flesh of wild animals, the turret folk carved dugout canoes, wielded iron battle axes and spears, and constructed tree houses on scaffolds in the dense rhododendron forests on the mountainsides above the sea. The turret folk relished having sex in public in the pale skin of the men and women, and even with the children, was heavily tattooed, covered with colorful patterns of all sorts of beautiful flowers. They were hostile to strangers, notorious for attacking unsuspecting wayfarers by leaping down on them like killer apes from their mosini or turrets. And this must be how Mithridates and his friends first made their acquaintance. And, you know, if that isn't several episodes of an RPG campaign right there, I don't know what we're even bothering to podcast for. Yeah. And uh, the Missonesi, uh, or however you say them, uh, also show up in the uh, Voyage of Jason and the Argonauts. Because they're just that badass. They cross over uh, to other fandoms is how good they are. Yes. Um, I, I want to I do a quote my own self, if I might. I would like to quote William Wordsworth, who is writing in the prelude about things he's not going to write a poem about. <laughs> Sometimes, more sternly moved, I would relate how vanquished Mithridates northward passed, and hidden in the cloud of years became Odin, the father of a race by whom perished the Roman Empire. Now, that, my friends, you thought Mithridates was great already. The notion that he faked his death, since, right, there's no witnesses, the poisons don't work on him, perhaps he'd had so many poisons so long that he's actually immortal— and he goes north into Goth territory, because that's uh, that north of the Black Sea area is where the Goths all come from, and wanders around just hating Rome and yeah. saying, y'all should get together and stomp on Rome, and eventually has the satisfaction, uh, losing his eye in some wacky adventure, no doubt, of seeing Rome fall under the hooves of his many times great uh, grand uh, tribesman. Well, if, if somebody's going to uh, retrofit your continuity, it should be Wordsworth. That's, it should be. That's pretty classy. Though. He was the Kevin Feige of his day. Right. Uh, so I, I think uh, Carl would be disappointed, though, if you didn't tell him about uh, the time that you met Mithridates and uh, how he struck you. D- did you did you try the duck? Um, I did. I did try the duck. Um, it was delicious. It was piquant. 
Um, it's sort of like a uh, Pontic duck is like fugu fish in that one of the things that makes it sort of a, it, it, with a, with a sort of a manly, uh, can you eat this po- Pontic duck sort of? So it's like half the ghost chili peppers of America's Texas and half the fugu fish of Japan. But the notion is you're eating something that you know is really going to mess you up, but how close to the bone can you get it and how, how much can you do it? And obviously if you have a time machine and uh, 45th century medicine on call, uh, with the touch of a button, you can eat more, uh, poison duck than most people can and wash it down with a healthy carafe of cucumber vodka, uh, which is a universal specific against mithridatic uh, duck poisons of all sorts. And so, uh, how was he to, to drink with? He was good. He was, I mean, the guy is cosmopolitan as heck. I mean, he, like you say, 22 languages, very, uh, civilized in, in, in the best kind of way has a uh, sort of a wild historical sweep that I find personally very congenial. There is uh, a sort of a agree to disagree about the Roman Empire and should it be in existence. But uh, you can certainly see his point as the king of Pontus. And uh, generally, um, when you're not worried about him poisoning you, which I guess is most of the time, a very uh, personable fellow. I mean, he's got he had six wives and a zillion uh, mistresses and close personal girlfriends. So he was a charismatic fellow. I don't think there's any question of that in the historical record. And he did manage to capture the imagination, not just of the East of his time, but uh, down into, as we said, the Renaissance uh, 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 moderns uh, who can sort of feel that charisma coming off the screen. He has an Alexander the Greatness to him uh, with the downside of not actually being very good at commanding things in battle. Right. He, well, he was great at commanding, just not at winning. Yeah, right. I guess, yeah, the commanding he could do really well. Yes. It was the part where you beat anyone that uh, he falls down uh, from his alleged ancestor, um, uh, Alexander and Seleucus. Right. There's no more glorious loser of three separate wars. Right. Well, you know, I don't know. The, the, the Napoleon pops to mind, but sure. Let's say, let's say uh, Mithridates. Well, did uh, Napoleon befriend turret folk and have a Scythian Amazon wife? He did not. He had a Polish uh, magical mistress, but he did not have an Amazon wife. So in that competition, yes, Mithridates would win. Right. Maybe if this was a segment about Napoleon, we would go the other way, but... Uh, this is Mithridates' segment. and right. uh, It's like when uh, you fight in your comic book, you win in your own comic book. Exactly. Uh, well, it's time for us to uh, close this issue of this particular comical book. But, of course, we will be back uh, next week uh, with more uh, antics and possibly even a few facts. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Put the elves and dwarves together for one last score with Patreon backers exactly like... Andrew Lalibert. Andrew Miller. Steve Kuntz. Alexander Zimmerman. And Andrew Jones. Snag Ken and Robin of Pearl and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest shirt is The Only Wrong Track is a Boring Track. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.